students, bury the dog, whoever you are, wherever you are, welcome to the North Carolina Study Center podcast. It's been a long time coming, really. We've, I think it's been something that we've talked about and kicked around the office for, I think, a couple years, but we're finally doing it. We finally got around to doing it years later, and we are more than excited to, to bring you some, some stuff and some recordings of some people who are really cool and um, who's got some important stuff to say. So we're glad we finally got there. Um, my name is Brant. I'm Brant Barry. So I'm actually a ministry fellow here at the Study Center. And um, yeah, it's my second year here. And it's been, it's been a really, really grand old time. I don't know what that phrase really means, but it's been a grand old time for sure. So um, just a little about who we are. If you're coming to us and you have no idea who we are, you stumbled upon this podcast. We are the North Carolina Study Center. We're a nonprofit, non-denominational Christian hospitality ministry based uh, out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So we're right immediately off campus to UNC Chapel Hill. We're technically, there is a road right across the street that divides us from campus. So we're about as close as you can get to campus without being on campus. Uh, but we're open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Um, we always have study space free coffee, hot water for tea, hot chocolate, water, a dog who is free, but not to take. Um, he's more just, he's more free to pet. Um, but we're out, yeah, we're here, we're a place for, uh, for friendship and conversation. And that's really what we hope this podcast to be. Um, as much as you can be a friend with somebody through a podcast, we hope that you can do that. But we really want to host um, important conversations on here. And more importantly, um, we have a lot of speakers who will bring to the study center throughout the year. Um, both with conferences and with um, little events that we hold um, on campus and here at the Battle House. So we really wanted to, we want this, um, the podcast to be a place um, where you can really just keep track from afar per se, you know, like we know that not everybody can make it to each event, um, maybe that are in the middle of the day, but we want you to feel connected with what's going on. So the first inaugural grand opening the opening day for the podcast, we had the um, the treat to hear from um, scientist or sociologist Elaine Howard Eklund last week. Um, so she um, came and spoke to us on um, the intersection between science and religion. So she's well known from uh, Rice University. She's the Herbert S. Autry Chair in Social Sciences. She's a professor of sociology at Rice. She's got a lot of names around her and she was just excellent. So she's actually well known. She's written two books that are very well known among others, but they're, they're very interesting and you'll see what I mean here. But the titles are, the first one is Science vs. Religion, What Scientists Really Think. And so she published that in 2010. And then her next book that was in 2017 is Religion vs. Science, What Religious People Really Think. So she really just kind of um, goes at that idea, turns it on, on its head and she it was a delightful afternoon of conversation. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy and uh, listening to Dr. Elaine Howard Eklund. Thank you, Elaine, for being here today. They asked for something personal, and I couldn't think of anything better than I once wrote a pig. I actually um, (laughs) was um, also raised on Podunk Road, P-O-D-U-N-K, and um, I was once ordering something with a credit card. Um, online, you know, this was, you know, over years and years ago when you called people up and gave them your credit card number. It wasn't online. Um, and this woman, I said, and she's like, what's your address? And I said, you know, 60 Podunk Road. And she's like, now really, ma'am, it's late at night. You know? <laughs> like, so um, that was my real address. So when I was growing up, I um, actually remember um, sort of the moment that I became inspired to start studying what scientists think about religion and then later on what religious people think about science. It was actually when I was working on my advisor's research project at Cornell University on another topic. And as part of my research, I needed to go to Bible study groups and sit in on discussion groups and listen what people said about certain things and kind of be a resident researcher in these groups. And I met a woman at one of the churches that I was participating in as part of this research. And she said, what do you do? And I said, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a PhD student at Cornell University. And she said, Cornell University, yuck. <laughs> and I was like, OK. I was like, maybe you know, she wanted her kids to go to Harvard or something. I, I was like, sort of, most people think, have you heard of Cornell? 
Yeah, like, right, you have, right? Is that most, just say yes. And, and most people, like, think, you know, this is a good school. It is an Ivy League school. It's a later to the Ivy League, but it's, a, it's thought to be a pretty good school. Um, and she said, and I just, was just curious, and I said, why don't you want your kids to get into Cornell? And, and she said, well, um, I'm really afraid that if they go to Cornell and they take science classes, that the science um, professors there will take them away from their faith. And it's very important to me that I've raised my children as Christians, I want them to remain Christians, and I think the scientists there might really attack that. And so she said, you know, I really just don't want my kids to go to Cornell, even though it's in our backyard. And I really was puzzled by that. I didn't feel particularly offended. I more felt like, is that really true? And I, I think that's the kind of beautiful thing about social science broadly and even my own field of sociology in particular is it can help us do research in a way that puts an individual story, this woman obviously had a narrative, in the collective of lots of stories, right? To see if what she believed is true more broadly. And that kind of started me on a journey. I felt like that woman was my first research subject, okay? I kind of saw what she thought. Um, she thought perhaps um, scientists are out to eat young Christian children for lunch, and that I wanted to know if that was true more broadly, um, not just related to Christianity, but what scientists think about religion. If someone like Richard Dawkins, who's written very popularly, is typical of all scientists, how these things operate in different places in the world. And I also wanted to see if this woman was typical of other groups of religious people. First, was she typical of Christians? Then was she typical of other religious traditions? Is, is this particular brand of Christianity that she was part of, say, representative of their Christians, and then what if we went to other religious traditions, what would we think about that? And so that's uh, kind of been a journey for me, and it's been just a journey of my own curiosity, and it's had some really wonderful, wonderful um, possibilities, both for me and um, for my students who've worked with me over the years. So I want to just present to you a little bit of that research right now. Um, before I get into more of the data presentation, I want to give you some funding acknowledgments. Um, we've been very fortunate at Rice University through the Religion and Public Life program, where um, I direct, which is an outreach program where we use research on religion and then translate it to the broader society. And um, we've gotten some generous funding, both from the John Templeton Foundation, the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and the Templeton Religion Trust. We have also done quite a bit of work on the environment and religion and environmental care and especially attitudes towards climate change. And that, interestingly, has been funded by the Shell Center for Sustainability. Um, you can smile if you want. Um, and uh, the National Science Foundation has funded quite a bit of our work on ethics. We have done quite a few studies now um, trying to understand scientists' attitudes towards certain kinds of um, ethical um, situations. And so that work has been funded by the National Science Foundation as well as some of our work on gender. So you can see, if you look around, if you read the newspaper, if you read some of the books that have made their way onto New York Times bestseller lists, um, why that woman I met at that church um, over 10 years ago now would have had the view that she did, right? She wasn't just crazy. There was a little bit of something, right? A little thread that led her to a broader stereotype, I will argue. Um, so Richard Dawkins, who I think has done really great work on the public translation of science, I'm a fan of a lot of his work, but he does say things like this occasionally. Faith, well, more than occasionally. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And I hear this kind of view um, mimicked. Interestingly, I'm going to argue actually not in the science community. I'm going to argue that Dawkins is actually very atypical. But I hear this um, view mimicked in different religious communities, from liberal to conservative kinds of religious communities, in that they think that Dawkins is pretty representative of scientists. So I've done experimental studies where I have asked people, like similar to how you ask young girls to, to draw a scientist, I've asked religious people to, um, 
to, well, when they do those studies of girls, they draw a scientist as a man with a white coat and a very particular image showing that they have a stereotype in their mind which may prevent them from going into science. When religious people, when I do studies similarly where we asked um, religious people to virtually draw a scientist, they draw Richard Dawkins. Like they think that he is typical, right? They think that scientists are all atheists, that they're all very negative towards religion, that they don't have any religious friends. These are different kinds of things I've tested through experimental design. Also, um, scientists, I think, are well within their rights to have some stereotypes of religious people. So here's um, Ken Ham, who's founder of the Creation Museum and an outspoken um, evangelical Christian in his own terms, who says he believes in a relatively young earth, only a few thousands of years old, which we accept, is a consequence of accepting the authority of the word of God as an infallible revelation from our omniscient creator. And Kim Ham is not even that outlandish compared to some things I could find if I looked around the web for other quotes. Um, we have politicians also um, saying things about the science community being sort of rabidly against um, religious people, but particularly certain groups of Christians. So into this, I think the job of the social scientist is to collect some data um, and to do some reflection on that data and what that might mean for these kinds of stereotypes, which I, I think do have some serious consequences in our social world. So two questions, and very basic questions, which I'm asking, is what do religious people really think about science, scientists, and, re and uh, the relationship between religion and science? And then what do scientists really think about um, religious people, the relationship between religion and science? And then I hope to end up this piece of the presentation and then so chance for you to be in dialogue with me and others a bit is thinking about what kinds of consequences these stereotypes, I will argue, have in the social world and how we might alleviate those consequences. What might we do um, as informed people, as perhaps interlocutors between these two communities, some of us? So data is coming from two specific places. So um, over the past four years, we've uh, done a, a research study through Rice University's Religion and Public Life program called the Religious Understandings of Science Study. This is just one national context, the United States. Um, we did a general population survey of all people, 12,000. Um, then we did uh, a sort of smaller survey within that where we oversampled, we took into our survey a greater number of people than would be represented in the population of scientists. So we wanted to get outside just universities and think about what we would see as sort of rank and file or everyday scientists, so people who work in research development and things like that, because a lot of my previous work had been with university scientists. Then we went into congregations. So we looked at evangelical Christians, at mainline Christians. Um, we looked at Muslims, Sunni Muslims primarily in the US. Um, we looked at Jews, both um, Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews. Um, and just to try to see what kinds of things were people saying in these organizational religious contexts. I sent students um, to go. It's funny, they kind of tell their friends on campus, they're like, what do you do for your research work for credit? We're like, I go to church for my research, <laughs> or I go to synagogue for my research. I often sent students to places that were not from their um, religious tradition of heritage, just to kind of mess them up a little bit, to kind of get them exposed to more stuff. So. Um, and then um, we did 319 in-depth interviews um, with people to really hear their narratives um, from these different religious traditions. I'm also drawing on data that we've collected over the past six years from a major research initiative called the Religion Among Scientists in International Context. Great acronyms for these studies that involve religion because you got an R right there. It's a good consonant. So ROSIC, Russ and ROSIC, right? Um, then we also have conducted research for a smaller initiative sponsored by the NSF called Ethics Among Scientists in International Context, which we call ESIC. And I'll draw on that a little bit too. So the ROSIC study looked at these eight national contexts, um, two disciplines, biology and physics. And I want to draw mostly from the U.S. data because that pairs nicely with the U.S. religious data. But we do have data from these other national contexts. And I'm giving a talk at Duke tonight um, that looks more specifically at that study. We had um, 9,422 survey respondents from a low response rate of about 43% to a high response rate of 57%. And um, I can talk to you about non-respondent analyses and things like that if something of interest to you there. 
And then with those who took the survey, these scientists in different national contexts, we then flew um, mostly to where they were in these different national contexts, but also some interviews on Skype. Um, we did in-depth um, interviews um, in five different languages. Um, and we were still paying to have some of that translated. This is a major, major study, a very complicated study. And then for this EASIC study, this ethics study, we did 211 inter interviews um, with physicists in particular in the US, the UK, and China. So a lot of fun. A very basic question, which I think um, researchers probably need to be asking even more nuanced questions than this. But I get this question a lot from scientists that I talk with. Do religious people actually like science? And so I think I should start with the kind of question that the science community is often asking me when I present this research. So it's kind of complicated. So there's a question that we asked in our survey, which asked, um, you know, how do you respond to the following kind of statement? Overall, modern science does more harm than good. We find that across religious groups and no religion, that actually a small, only a small proportion of people think that science does more harm than good. And when you interview them about their views in response to that survey question, even that small proportion of people who think that science does more harm than good are really thinking of kind of outlandish examples that are not very typical of everyday scientific research. If that, you know, what if um, nuclear proliferation happened to such a great extent, then, then there, there was actual use of nuclear arms in a war setting. That would be science potentially doing more harm than good. Well, I think that's debatable, you know, if that's really the scientists who caused that. So, so sort of you get into these kinds of conversations. But mostly the public thinks that science itself is pretty good. Here's a reformed Jew who says the following. He says, I know there's a lot that science can do to help the human race and to help us. Do I want them to make it where I can live to be 300 years old? No. I think nature needs to take its course. But to help with a disability or coming up with a cure for cancer, I am all for it. So here's another kind of question we ask in our survey. Please tell me how interested you are in and then there were all kinds of other things. And actually, science ranks pretty high. So in terms of new scientific discoveries, about 22% um, of evangelical Protestants are interested in new scientific discoveries. So not 80%, but a little less than a quarter. Non-religious people, 47% are interested in new scientific discoveries. So that's interesting. There is a religious difference there. Um, what also I'll go back a second. What this survey, when we ranked according to other things, um, showed me is that people in the general public, there's actually a low response on this um, question to everything. So I'm like, what is the general public interested in? It was kind of an interesting. So science actually, I should have put up relative to other things there so you could see the comparison. But science actually scored pretty high in comparison like to politics. Like apparently no one's interested in politics. I would not believe that from looking at the news, but okay. Um, new medical discoveries. This we found really interesting. So 37%, and you'll look at across the groups for most of them when compared to basic science research versus new medical discoveries, that their interest goes up. The proportion of people who are interested, very interested, and even more so if you were to combine somewhat and very interested. This is just the very interested people. Um, for the non-religious, it goes down a little bit. But for evangelical Protestants, 22% versus 37% tell me they're very interested in new, in new medical discoveries. Even mainline Protestants goes up. Catholic goes up. Even Jews. Um, and that is really interesting. And so what we did is then we followed up with interviews to try to figure out why the difference between just basic science and medical discoveries. And the kind of views that we picked up were very religiously motivated across the different types of traditions. Religious people generally interested in science that they perceive, help, that they perceive as helping people. Does that make sense? Medicine is seen among religious people really across the board as a kind of helping profession, and it feels closer to their religious ethic, broadly construed. This was true for Jews, also true for Muslims, also true um, for Catholics. So that was really interesting finding to me. Um, where they kind of took issue with science um, were three kinds of things, which I think have some implications for how we think about communicating science to a broader religious public. And I want to kind of explore that a little bit 
with you. So three particular kinds of issues. We ask people about lots of scientific issues. People have no moral problem generally with um, technologies and technological advancement through science that lead to things like better iPhones, better refrigeration. No one is like, gosh, I really am morally bothered by how my refrigerator works. So, I mean, that's kind of a joke, but you just sort of take it for granted. But in general, you know, science is making our lives better. But where they do have a hang-up is issues which they think involve something to do with who God is and who human beings are, the uniqueness of human beings. And so it almost centered around three kinds of scientific topics. And I think there's something instructive here for the scientist who's interested in reaching the broader public, as well as for the religious leader who's like, you know, I'd really like to make sure that my congregation is thoughtful um, about integration of science and faith. I think this kind of data can be useful to both of those groups. So here's Bill Maher in his movie Religulous who says, um, so one of these, of course, topics is evolution. So he says, we've been talking to so many religious people and many of them believe the earth is 5,000 years old. Well, Bill, it's not quite like that. So what we did on our survey is um, we had six different narratives and we asked our respondents to rate them um, in terms of whether each is probably or definitely true or not true. And this was a little bit different than some other survey work that's been done by other researchers. Um, this approach is now being modeled more broadly. Um, and the narratives ranged from, you know, evolution um, is the best explanation for the develop for the origin and the development of life on Earth. Um, there's no way any kind of God was involved in this. It's a completely naturalistic kind of thing, to a sort of creation, a sort of strong creation narrative on the other on the other end. Something that we did differently in our survey when compared to other surveys as well. So we gave them more narratives to choose from. And we also allowed them to choose more than one narrative, which was kind of interesting. People believe things that seem pretty inconsistent. So when you allow them to pick, um, I know, right? So surprising. Um, so when you, I know, as researchers, we're such idealists. We're like, what? That's so inconsistent. You're not allowed to say that if you're interviewing someone, just so you know. You don't, like, attack them about what they said. So... Um, this was a survey, so that was kind of just shocking in and of itself, but I'll, I'll show you a little bit. Um, and this was, I think it really, the reasons came out in this narrative from an evangelical Christian who said this, was a creator behind evolution or is there a creator or not is more important. Could a creator have used evolution as a means to create man or something? Sure, why not? But I think, is there a creator is a much more important question. So that's where it was. So the evangelical Christians, but interestingly also mainline Christians and Catholics and some Jews kind of held in on any of the narratives that made room for a creator, right? Um, so they were totally fine with um, a naturalistic evolution um, explanation as long as it um, led, had room for a creator. And I can't remember because I can't see. You now I didn't. I wasn't able for time to put all that up. But I, we have an article on this, and there's also a chapter on it in our book, um, that they were even picking somewhat inconsistent narratives as long as those narratives allowed um, room for a creator, which we thought was really interesting. Oops. Oh. My um, view of my slides just went off. That's OK. Um, I can just look over here. If so, you tap the screen, I think it might come Oh, where it says press here to begin? Thank you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry. That was very helpful. That was indeed true, what she said. Um, so, um, the other issue which was um, really interesting to us was this uniqueness of humans issue. And this came out a lot in the human reproductive genetic technologies. And so um, here's two kinds of things. Um, we asked respondents if it was morally wrong to destroy human embryos if doing so helps scientists find cures for disease, and if um, it was morally wrong to do medical research that uses stem cells from sources that do not involve human embryos. And interestingly, for evangelical Protestants, 66% thought even if destroying human embryos um, helps scientists find cures for disease is still morally wrong. And Catholics, 56% thought this. Mainline Protestants, 46% thought this. Jews, 28%. The non-religious goes down a bit to 20%. Um, whereas still evangelical Protestants, interestingly, medical research that uses stem cells from sources that do not involve human embryos, 
Um, I wonder if they may have thought that that was human embryonic stem cell research and didn't read the question carefully enough, but um, the other groups um, also quite low for that one. So there seems to be a real distinction there amongst a wide variety of religious groups, but especially for um, those who feel comfortable with the label evangelical Protestant. Here's an evangelical Christian who says the following, I don't consider myself extremely knowledgeable, but according to the Bible, human life is sacred. This woman meant she didn't feel knowledgeable about these technologies. And I believe, based on my study of the Bible, that human life begins at conception. So anytime after conception, if you're engaging in a practice that could lead to the destruction of human life, given that definition, I think there is a problem. The other thing that came up is this. Um, this sort of discussion about scientists and the limits of science. So 39% of evangelicals that we surveyed said that they've witnessed a miraculous healing, 15% of Catholics and 9% of Jews, and 60% of evangelicals think scientists should be open to considering miracles. So that's where, when, when people ask me, you know, is there a conflict between religion and science? I say, well, it depends what you mean by religion, it depends what you mean by science, and it depends sort of who are the conversation partners here. Um, so evangelical Protestants don't really have much um, problem with science, but scientists might ask, do they really understand, given a finding like this, what science is exactly and what it should consider? So. Um, I, I was giving an interview uh, with a reporter from Science Magazine once about these data, and I gave him that finding about evangelicals thinking scientists should be open to considering miracles. And he really kind of was very angry with me. Um, and, and it was, and we kind of talked about it. And I was saying, like, I don't think this necessarily, but this is a view that's really out there in the public. And he wrote, he ended up writing a great um, piece about just these issues and lots of other issues. Um, but it's something that, of course, is hard for the scientists to hear because, of course, they often think these are in different, different domains. So that's something to think about. Here's a Muslim who says this, God is the ultimate creator. So this is not just evangelicals. Um, so God is not bound by the laws of nature. He has created the laws of nature. This means that in 99% of the cases, if a child has cancer, he will die. But I believe God can intervene and God can suspend the laws of nature. So the uniqueness of humans and also a sovereign God, a God, an evolved God. So really key um, theological issues that have an impact in how certain groups of religious people view science. So then let's turn to our scientists religiously. So most of the data from this section is not taken from my first book, the 2010 book, which is called Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think, um, but taken from this book that's coming out in 2019. So we've made up a not very pretty cover. This is not the actual cover um, that will appear in the book. The Oxford designers will make up a much, much better cover. Um, but the book is called Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Really Think About Religion. And this book is the one from that eight country study of religion among scientists in international context. So um, we're just looking at the US data for a bit. So this is thinking about who scientists are religiously, and these are mostly university scientists. So this is the um, proportion you responded to these questions. Do you consider yourself at least slightly religious? So 31% of US scientists located in universities think of themselves as at least slightly religious. So that's interesting. Um, spiritual but not religious. This group I've, I've come to be very interested in. It's increasing in the general population quite a bit. Um, and there are greater proportions of scientists who see themselves as spiritual but not religious than in some groups in the general population. So that's kind of interesting. Um, they have a very particular kind of spirituality which they see as very consistent with science. I've written some about that. Um, those who attend religious services at least once a month, so that's pretty frequent attendance, 17%. Those who have a religious um, spouse, um, almost a third, um, believe science has had no impact on how religious they are. We've written, our team has written um, about that quite a bit because even scientists who um, see themselves as having transitioned towards atheism, and this is a big stereotype in religious organizations when I go around and present this material, they really think that it's science that le can lead people away from the faith, whatever the faith is for that particular organization. And um, whereas many scientists do not think science has had an actual impact on how religious they are. So that's kind of interesting to kind of, of course, this is all perceptions research, right? This is, I didn't actually follow these scientists from birth to, you can't, that's not humane to do that kind of study where you, um, just FYI, I've been on IRB boards and such. Um, here also, 
is um, something that's really challenged me as a researcher. I love it when your own stereotypes are blown away. The rest of this stuff, just from my kind of everyday experiences, I probably would have thought, yeah, that's, I would have expected that. But I actually, I think, had a lot of views of atheist scientists myself. I didn't think necessarily, because I've had lots of this is such a, a non-scholarly thing to say, but I've had lots of friends who are atheist scientists. So I did not um, have a particular view of atheist scientists as like virulent and negative um, towards religious people. But I would not, I, I think, have had a particularly nuanced view of what I am calling the varieties of atheism, the sort of ways in which people can be atheists in the general public and in particularly in the science community which I think of is, as an especially thoughtful group of people, meaning that they prize reason, um, that they want to be consistent, that that sort of prizing of consistency, I think, is a real hallmark of being a scientist. Um, and so I was kind of blown away by this, and that's been really fun for me. Um, so here's some things. Um, I was surprised at how religiously involved atheist scientists sometimes are. That's one thing that was kind of been fun. And then we got to interview them about what that means to them. So 15% of them think of themselves as religiously affiliated, right? And again, this is not like um, you as the researcher say, that's so inconsistent. How can you not believe in God and still you know, go to church? Well, I don't, we don't judge. We just collect the data, right? So, um, and then 15% have a religious spouse. 17% um, um, attend religious services sometimes. So um, some of them pray. 54% um, say, and this is also, um, I love to present this material in certain religious groups, 54% of the atheist U.S. scientists say that science did not make them less religious, and 40% said that there are basic truths in many religions. So I like to present this material because I think it kind of loosens up the religious public a little bit. Does that make sense? And um, potentially makes them just a little bit more receptive, not only to science itself, but also to scientists as a people group. And so probably the best um, public sociology um, that you can do, I would argue, is presenting research data to communities where it breaks down stereotypes the communities have of each other and allows them to communicate better in some way that has some sort of public good, however you define that. So here's an atheist biologist that says this about sort of um, her own, it's a woman, her own spirituality. She says, you need a sense of wonder. Holy crap, that's an amazing thing. <laughs> if you don't have that, you can't be a great scientist. And she sort of went to say, like, I was very interested in getting, like, um, curious in these data um, to how scientists can be spiritual and atheists. Um, that was really fun for me to think about and what that spirituality means if it's not linked to a God concept, which in the general population we do think of spirituality as linking to a sort of diverse God's concept, but some kind of God concept, if that makes sense. And what does that mean to be a spiritual atheist scientist? And I've just had so much fun. I'm writing a book about that right now with a colleague. I'm just really loving this data. Um, so here's an atheist physicist who says a biblical literalist view of the origin of the universe could affect you as a scientist. But I think for the most part, the religious scientists that are around are not affected. The religion doesn't affect their science. I put that up because um, this person um, thinks of religious scientists as having a kind of independence view, right? A sort of separate spheres view. But I also put it up because this physicist, this atheist physicist, is not particularly hostile to religious colleagues. Like this was a person who was pretty friendly to religious colleagues, recognized that they're there, and was pretty accepting. Maybe had a very particular kind of acceptance that you might take issue with, but certainly wasn't hostile um, in any way. Another thing we think about is, um, is the conflict paradigm empirically accurate for scientists? So do scientists themselves think there's a conflict? Um, and here, just for our US scientists, um, most of them think that, um, both religious and non-religious scientists, think that um, science and religion refer to different aspects of reality, sort of an abstract Stephen Jay Gould, non-overlapping magisterium kind of idea. Only 13% um, think that they can collaborate. Each can be used to support the other. And 29% have a conflict view. Um, and here's a conflict within the US scientific workplace, which is another thing that we've studied, which I think is really interesting. So this is, just to put this first um, data point for you, so here we said, please estimate the percentage of colleagues in your department who are very religious. 
So we wanted to know if scientists think that there are very religious scientists in their departments. And then we actually surveyed all of those departments. So we um, could actually tell based from survey responses of their departments if there were religious scientists. Does that make sense? So we could compare the two. And um, scientists um, generally underestimated the proportion of religious scientists in their departments. So there is some secrecy or something going on there. But 62% um, identified some religious scientists in their departments. That was interesting. And then we asked, had there ever been any conflicts about religion in your science departments that you're aware of? Only 9% said that they, there had been. Very different in other national contexts, like um, Turkey, for example, um, and some of the other contexts that we studied. In your opinion, do you think that your religious peers, religious views, so these are scientists' religious, pe religious peers, um, positively or negatively influence their research. Only 3% thought that a scientist's religious views would negatively influence their research. That's interesting. So you have some respect for their scientist colleagues. How comfortable would you be letting people in your department know about your views on religion, whatever these may be? Only 24% thought that they would be um, somewhat or very uncomfortable. Um, so their perception was that you could let your colleagues know your views on religion. So that's interesting. Um, here's a biologist who identified herself as being slightly religious who said, I don't think there's any inherent conflict between science and religion. I think that there are only ones that are invented by a very few highly publicized groups that is particularly strong in our country. So... Um, an atheist physicist said, the conflict between science and religion exists for very, very far right-wing Christians in this country and for very conservative Muslims in other parts of the world. So here's um, sort of where I think there might be some common ground, and then I'm extremely eager to hear what you think. I always benefit a great deal, and I think this is a very diverse audience representing different kinds of um, social spaces. So here's some things that when I talk to scientists that I say, here's some things you might do, okay? Um, start with common ground. So there's some issues where the science communities and many communities of faith can actually agree. There's, in our broader research, shows that there is a lot of support in particular faith communities for care for the environment, okay? We'll get to climate change in a minute, but just basic care for the environment. Um, and science, scientists universally pretty much in, re, in surveys that we've done um, think that environmental care is a good thing and that we're harming, that human actions are harming the environment and that we, more can be done. So this could be a kind of common ground, right, that you think about certain kinds of social issues or not social issues but um, natural issues where there could be a real common ground. What about, there's tons of programs for outreach for NSF and NIH. You have to have a broader impact and you have to build an outreach to your grants. What about seeing scientists in the pews as a kind of bridge builder? So this is where I think that um, these programs, which are really bringing to light science and congregations, um, can be especially useful in doing some pioneering work here. So 17% of scientists outside the top universities, so remember a piece of the general population survey was to look at everyday scientists. So 17% of them identify as evangelical Christians. That's interesting. And 24% as mainline Protestants. And so there may be some scientists in the pews, just in a, from a Christian um, standpoint. So what if those folks were seen as a kind of bridge builders between faith communities and the scientific community? That's something I'd like you to try on. So when I give talks to um, religious leaders, what do I say that these data might show what they could do if they want to increase um, understanding of and support for science? Um, I try to argue to them that they ought to start young, that they ought to start with the youngest people in their congregations and encourage discussions about science in their churches and other religious organizations. Um, there's, I have lots of data, which I just didn't have time to present here, where scientists are talking about how they were always inquisitive, and particularly those who come from certain kinds of Christian backgrounds in our data in the United States, felt like they were not encouraged to ask hard questions of their faiths um, within the context of their church communities, that they were told that to sort of set those questions aside. And so I would really, if you want to retain um, youth in churches who are inquisitive, to encourage them to ask hard questions of their faiths in the context of their church communities. I think that could be very powerful. 
to see science itself as a form of calling. Um, actually, interestingly, Jews, Christians, and Muslims in our studies all use this language of calling um, to really empower um, faith leaders to um, see the scientists in their midst as having a kind of ministry, um, a kind of special role, both in the congregation but in the broader world. So what would that look like? That's kind of controversial for some people, but um, I think these data show that that could be a bit of an antidote. Also, I think this is another, I maybe should have put this point earlier, another way that scientists and people of faith can join together is increasing science access for all. Massive underrepresentation of science of non-white groups, but especially underrepresented U.S. minorities, um, black and Latino Americans. Black Americans are less than 1% of scientists, although about 14% of U.S. population. And if you go to the top research universities, the number of U.S.-born black scientists is yearly negligible. I remember this point was really coming home to me um, one time when I did this study, um, one of my first studies of U.S. scientists, and I um, said <laughs> to my respondent over the phone, I said, um, you know, please, if you just for the record, for demographic information, if you could give me your race. And he said, no, because um, I, will, I will completely identify me and I don't want my data, I want my data to remain confidential. And I said, people's race, that's a, a general, we pool the data, that doesn't, that doesn't identify people. He said, if you knew my race, it would identify me. And um, because he said, I'm one of you know, a handful of black physicists in this particular field um, in the entire nation. And I'm like, that can't be true. And I, so I went home and asked my husband, you know, who's part of the same field, um, if he knew, if he could name to me the names of the black physicists in his field, and he named that man second. So, I mean, it just, like, the kind of lack of representation and the pressure that that puts on people that are there. And interestingly, when we interview scientists, um, minority communities are more likely to be religious. So when I've done then interviews with um, general population people, that particularly for black and Latino youth um, that have religious traditions is very much a part of their heritage and current practice, um, that this is an extraordinarily important part of their identity. And they feel that they may be experiencing a sort of double minority status where they would go into science and be both religious minorities as well as racial and ethnic minorities. So I think this is something where scientists and um, faith communities could do a lot of common reflection. Um, we're setting up some studies right now just in the pilot stage in Houston where we're thinking about how might you study youth in congregations and then um, have some kind of intervention through congregations of science support that actually occurs in congregations. That's kind of controversial. From Both communities think it's controversial, interestingly, <laughs> both the science community and the faith community. That's okay. I don't want to shy from controversy. Um, so there's, I just want to try that on, on with you too. Um, so that's what I have, but I'm very, very eager to hear your reflections, and if you have other questions, happy to take them right now to talk to you about that question for like five hours, Josh, but I'm sure as a person who's a member of the medical school, you don't have the time. <laughs> um, but so, okay, two pieces of advice. So I've just said, don't shy from discussing the controversies, but a second kind of piece of advice, which I think could be a bit more subversively helpful in addressing the kind of issues that you um, are bringing up is to get ahead of the curve. So I don't think you want to um, go for the juggernaut of controversy on your first conversation. You want to, as a faith community, already have been making a space for hard questions and for discussions about science and presenting the possibilities for it from a Christian perspective, which is my own heritage and tradition as well, um, to think about how we can present science as a very positive thing that's potentially been given to us by God that can do good in the world. So sort of present this positive framing of science um, before the sort of controversial issues come up. So I think this sort of reframing of the space. I also think using scientists um, in your midst is really, really important. Now, I want to add a really important caveat given to what I've just said. Um, science is um, social class and race stratified, right? Um, massive underrepresentation 
of uh, minority groups, um, all U.S. minority groups, including actually um, Asian American groups from particular heritages. We, we have a stereotype about that as well that I want to point out. Um, not internationals, but U.S. born. And um, so science is stratified, congregations are stratified. So you're gonna find certain congregations, particularly those that are populated by underrepresented minority groups in the U.S. do not have scientists in them. So what do you do with that? I wanna really think about that together as a community, both as an academic community um, and as faith communities, because I know we have faith leaders here too and those who will be listening later. Um, to think about what does it mean to join together in common initiatives that might be useful here? What does it mean for universities to open up their doors to particular groups? Um, so I want to think about that as a kind of public scholarship mandate, but also for higher SES religious communities. Um, what does that mean about their kind of responsibilities um, to the rest of the world? So those are, that, I, I don't have clear, your, your question, as you can tell, really makes me passionate. And I don't have like three points. Um, but more some musings of kind of what direction I'd like to see our conversation start taking. Thanks for asking that question. Yeah, go ahead. So I was puzzled, not, not really puzzled, but I was <laughs> captured by the attitude towards science with the evangelicals and mm -hmm. how divergent they were from every other group. Um, Non-religious people, they were like two to one. Jews, uh, there's a Judeo-Christian heritage. And so, um, the, 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 my question is, what, what do you think is driving that significant divergence, and is there any movement in that number, or is it set in stone? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. So um, evangelicals are a group in U.S. society who take um, the sovereignty of God and the uniqueness of humans especially seriously. And that seems to have an impact on their attitudes towards science because I think in some corners, um, science has been framed as attacking those very cherished and core theological um, assertions. Uh, the reason I make that claim is because if you look at Muslims who have the same, there, there aren't enough Muslims in American society to um, look at the same population size groups. We had to take in a lot more Muslims that are actually represented even to get a very small group into our survey. But this is a very important group and we've been able to look at them more in other societies where, they're, where you can study actually a range of traditions of Islam and the traditions that take more seriously, which many Muslims do, the sovereignty of God and the uniqueness of humans um, have similar kinds of attitudes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I do think um, there's something that's driving. So I, I, I wouldn't want to say publicly, well, I am, but okay. <laughs> I guess I am saying publicly um, that evangelicals are taking those things more seriously than mainline Protestants and Catholics. But when you find mainline Protestants and Catholics that take those things seriously at the same levels, they have similar views. Does that make sense? They're just a larger group. Um, of evangelicals who do in U.S. society, and so they tend to stick out very prominently. Does that? Yeah, it, so could I infer from that, or do you know the data? So if you took fundamentalist evangelical Christians and have a number like 22%, for the Muslim, uh, fundamentalist Muslim that you may have, of course you may have a statistical difference in the, in the order of the universe, you know, the, the, the population yeah. size. Are the numbers like in the 20s? I would not be able to approximate at the level of quantitative um, proportionality like that, um, just you because there's not, saying? yeah. My Muslims in my sample, um, just not a large enough group to look at differences in tradition. I'm mainly going from other data that's been collected by other scholars on Islam, where sadly there have not been very fine-tuned questions on science and religion attitudes, but some basic questions about science. And I do know from, I'm presenting some data on UK and France and Italy tonight and other national contexts in East Asia as well, um, that those scientists really are talking about Islam being, I hate this kind of language, but I'll just say it because it's the words of my scientists, not me, um, sort of a problem for science, you know? And um, I had one scientist in the UK say to me, wow, you know, our Muslims here, they're a problem for science like your evangelicals are for, um, <laughs> for um, science in the US. And I say like when I give um, talks to scientists about public outreach to religious groups, I'm like, start by not calling a people group a problem. Like just like drop that language. Like this is not, you know, like that is not like the way to win friends and influence people, right? <laughs> so you gotta really be careful here. But that your question is a really apt one from a statistical standpoint. Yeah, and then, um, yeah. 
So based on that same study that he was referencing, it was said that 52% of non-Western religions are like interested in new scientific discoveries. Yes, I knew someone was going to ask. Well, you go ahead and ask your question. I'd yeah, love to say. Like yeah, even more than non-religious people. And I was just wondering, what's the difference? What are what's the difference between non-Western religions and Western religions? Okay, and you should be asking me too. What does non-Western religion mean? Because right. it's a horrific category. <laughs> so these are groups that did not have enough representation in our survey in order to be their own separate groups. So they tended to be Sikhs and Hindus and some Buddhists. Um, and then our decision was, um, do we throw them out of the survey altogether because they're not able to be represented? Or do we collect them up and present them as a whole? And so I have this whole like, um, little side footnote that's like three pages long. It's not a little footnote in our book where we talk about what we mean by non-Western religion. And along, uh, among the evil uh, methodological choices we have, or the less good, evil is too strong, the less good um, methodological choices we have, calling them non-Western religions was the least less good. <laughs> um, so <laughs> what, what these groups um, do have in common is that they, their particularly recent migration um, trajectories have been related to um, knowledge work visas to come to the US. So that um, seems to be, because we can also look at migrant status um, and international status, and that seems to be um, a way that they hold together. And that means, I think that means we're self-selecting here on a group of people in the US who have particularly positive attitudes towards science um, because of education levels, because of also the very particular, even the particular occupations in which they're getting visas tend to be in science and tech. And so there's, I think this is a very specialized group of people in our survey, so, yeah. So your statistics seem to have like a lot of information about scientists in the workforce. Um, yeah. I was just wondering, if you've looked at scientists in the university setting and sort of like, are there differences in trends? Differences? So most of the work is actually looking at scientists in the university setting. Yeah, so I actually only have a very small um, piece of the general population study that looks at scientists and other kinds of workforces, um, which is very hard to understand because there's such diversity in the kinds of workforces that scientists or the kinds of workplaces that scientists can be in. But in general, when we go outside of the university, scientists tend to be much more religiously similar to the general population. So there's actually very, I have a talk on that for another time, but um, there's actually very little difference religiously between scientists who are in everyday workplace. You think about like working in research and development at Procter & Gamble or something, you know, sort of like the kinds of occupations people trained in science and tech might have. Um, they're pretty religiously similar to the general population. And why, you might ask, <laughs> right? um, if you're interested. There's been actually a literature on that. Um, it seems, it doesn't seem to me like um, scientists become uh, less religious through their scientific training. That's something that's really been popularized as a hypothesis. I'm not seeing so much evidence for that. It does seem like um, non-religious scientists disproportionately self-select into particular kinds of university environments. And you might ask why that is, and I'm not exactly sure, um, but that's what seems to be happening over time. Um, that there, I see a higher proportion, especially in the US, of scientists who are part of second generation atheist families, which is actually not very popular in, not, not like it's a, personal choice popular, but like it's not very frequent. So amongst other groups of people, it's it's pretty uncommon to actually, it's it's more and more common to be an atheist now, but it's uncommon to be have been raised in an atheist household. Does that make sense? And you see a higher portion of scientists are coming from that condition. So scientists were never religious. Does that make sense? I also see, um, we've compared our data to like earlier studies conducted amongst university scientists also see a pretty pronounced increase in the number of Catholic scientists in US universities, which is interesting, and may have to do with um, increases in education over time, uh, education levels for Catholics in US society, as well as Catholic, very prominent Catholic higher education institutions, which are, are well-ranked. So there's sort of some things there that are going on that's interesting. Also, massive increase in religious diversity 
in the U.S. scientific community because of international and migration trends. So you have Buddhists and Hindus um, amongst university scientists, like what is going on in this U.S. context with religion and science? And it's just sort of, uh, and that kind of actually spurned my, my, my big international study is a conversation with a Hindu science who I love, scientists are so bright. I know this is obvious to all of you, but um, they feel very empowered compared to other population groups that I've studied to actually confront you about your, the nature of your research questions themselves. So um, other people groups that you study don't be like, that's a dumb question. <laughs> don't ask me that question. <laughs> um, but sci- I had this great conversation with a Hindu scientist once, a really lovely, lovely man who said, like, I said, so, you know, some people say that scientists have a conflict between religion and science. What do you think about that? And he's like, why do you Western Christians always ask that stupid question? <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> restart. <laughs> but, but it was really great to be confronted because um, then I started really like reading literature on this outside of the US context, outside of the Western Christian context, and sort of thinking about the religious traditions and um, became captivated by the idea of uh, you know doing a cross-national study, and that's been just loads and loads of work, but also loads and loads of fun. So yes. So you opened with the story about the the mom who was afraid <laughs> to send her kids to Cornell, um, and I think you showed a lot of data that sort of cut against maybe some of her assumptions. But I I also wonder if you would kind of speak to the other side of that. So I mean, you you showed the fifty-four percent number of uh, atheist scientists who. Mm who didn't think, or, or who said that um, their science had not diminished their religious belief, which means there's 46% that, you know, I don't know if it was another question asked or if it was just a yes-no, um, but I mean, 46 is a pretty large percent and, and doesn't make the Cornell mom or Cornell hating mom mm-hmm. sound particularly irrational. And, you know, especially with, I mean, so Carl Sagan being at Cornell, and, you know, you talked about Richard Dawkins, and then there's Neil deGrasse Tyson, and so there, there seems to be a bit of a disproportionate representation of, of science popularizers, maybe, who are in the more anti-religion. Um, That's definitely the case, and that is a problem. Um, so it wasn't that 46% think that science did have an impact. Um, most of those were um, neutral. It had no impact either way. Um, so I think that you raise a really good issue, which is what do we do with these science popularizers who, um, I wrote an article about UK scientists that was, I can't remember what the editor ended up calling it in the end. It was something like, we are not Richard Dawkins. <laughs> um, and so um, these UK scientists who we interviewed who felt very strongly they didn't want to be, I feel like I'm always picking on Richard Dawkins, like he's some kind of muse or something. Um, and I, I don't actually mean to be doing that, but he does have very colorful quotes. Um, the, the problem that UK scientists said, this really gives a bad rap to the whole science community and we're really not like this. And I don't know what to do with that exactly. I think part of it is trying hard to get um, public antidotes, right? So where are the um, religious scientists who are really actively talking about integrating these things? Well, we have Francis Collins, but you know where are the others? And then the other thing that actually is a bit hopeful I think if one has the propensity that you know young kids shouldn't be afraid and their parents shouldn't be afraid of higher education for these reasons, something that's actually quite hopeful is that it seems to be from initial research we're doing that people are most likely to change their minds um, through relationships with people they know rather than say you know reading Dawkins books or um, these is it's like called confirmation bias like sort of I believe that already and then I read his book and I believe it more you know so that so that's um, but but when you know someone, and especially our initial research is showing when you know someone who matches one of your identities and doesn't match the other, so you're like, oh, I'm both, we're both evangelical Christians, but you're a scientist and I'm not, and I felt a little bit afraid of scientists, but now that I know you and know that we're on the same page religiously, I'm a little bit less afraid of scientists because I trust you in the Christian category identity. Does that make sense? And so there's been lots of studies uh, about this kind of thing for other kinds of identities, and I'm starting to mimic some of that research design um, in experimental kind of settings, if that makes sense. Um, You can do some interesting stuff even on surveys, on mass population surveys, like building in little experiments in the surveys. Um, And that seems to be the way that people change their minds most readily. So I'm musing around your question (laughs) Um, some. 
But that's something I've thought about a lot because we often in the social world want to know how to change people's minds. And so this would be an interesting issue to study along those lines. Yeah. Did any of the scientists say that their study of science increased their religion? Or that was another, sorry, that was in response to this fellow's question over here. So it was take me away, had no impact, increase. A small proportion, a much smaller proportion, um, or had no, yeah, no impact. Um, a much smaller proportion said increased my appreciation for my faith, but there was a, an appreciable minority who did. I can't remember it right now, so I shouldn't say the exact number. Yeah. So, so my, related to that question, I, I like this idea of scientists in the pew. Um, do you have enough overlap in terms of your surveys of religious people and presence of scientists to understand to what degree having scientists in um, in churches and congregations is impacting how people view science in this congregation? And you talked about. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So how is that? Can you look at your data in that way or do you have those data? No. So you would need a kind of study that would allow you to compare congregational contexts that have scientists and that don't and the impact that particular kinds of conversations had. Um, I don't, I don't have that kind of data, but that's something that I've thought about collecting, sort of tracking different kinds of programs over time and things like that to just sort of see, like you could imagine doing a survey of a congregation like pre and post, you know, th just things like that to think about. Yeah. Do you think that even if like it, um, or just like a religious uh, congregation doesn't believe in like evolution, for example, do you think they should still be teaching it and just saying like, this is what, this so this is what I tell scientists is to um, <laughs> I just sort of like my down and dirty tricks for teaching science um, based on these data. I'm like, okay, never say the word belief. Just don't say it. <laughs> so scientists, when I sometimes present um, these materials, they're like, oh, now you want us to like talk about theology in the classroom. Like, no, it's not so much about what I want you to talk about. It's what I don't want you to talk about. So I think you have to access people where they are. And so for the scientists, I always say just, you know, teach um, what evolution is, what scientists think of as evolution. Don't talk about inference for belief in God or anything. Just um, leave that aside completely. Because what you do find when you do observational work in science classrooms is that occasionally scientists do give offhanded comments about these other kinds of things. And that kind of feeds right into people's stereotypes. Like it's just like red light, red light, red light. Oh my gosh, you know. Um, and so um, I sort of say just avoid certain kinds of things. I know that doesn't sound like the most intellectual, deep, um, you know, highest order goal of the university is avoidance. But I think you do need to think about the particular spaces where it's most helpful to talk about particular kinds of things. Um, so that's sort of, I want to try that on a little bit. I may not be entirely right about that. When it comes to congregations, um, you know, pastors then get really, we're talking specifically Christian context, they like get really anxious. They're like, oh my gosh, I have to know all this theology and pastoral ministry and counseling, and now you want me to become a scientist too and start reading textbooks so that I can, you know, have intelligent conversations. And, ah! you know, it's just very, very overwhelming to people. So I think you have to draw on scientists themselves, either from your congregation, and we talked about these sort of social stratification factors, which make it so that scientists are not present in every congregation, and then think about um, where you're going to go and get those potential people if these are issues that your congregation is dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, was there a particular religious affiliation that was the most represented in the scientists that you sampled? So the way we think about this as sociologists is, um, so some groups of religious people in the US are quite small and some groups are quite large. So in general, Christians are the most represented among scientists. Um, but they are, uh, among university scientists, they're still somewhat underrepresented compared to their numbers in the general population. Does that make sense? Um, Jews are overrepresented in quite extreme ways. Even if you think there's um, Jews that we interviewed who are scientists, will say there's a difference between having a cultural heritage as being Jewish and honoring that and being religiously Jewish. Even religiously Jewish scientists are overrepresented in university contexts, and there's a lot of really important historical reasons why that's the case. So, yeah. Um, were you 
you surprised at people's willingness or unwillingness to share such personal information? And did you have any techniques for putting people at ease? Oh, that's a great methods question. Um, so there's different, I was surprised at the extent to which people would share with me about their religious journeys. Uh, even in the science community, where my own stereotype was that people would not want to talk about these things. I was actually very surprised. Um, and I would say that in the science community, when, we, when our team was doing interviews, at first it was just me, because the studies were smaller, and then now I've been training large teams of students and postdocs. Um, we talk a lot about the kinds of things that build um, integrity and trust in the science community, and they're different kinds of things than build integrity and trust in faith communities. And so we talk a lot about how you might um, symbolically display those things. So I talk a lot in the science community about the rigor of the study and you know wanting to have real data you know, to uh, a, a sort of context where it's just opinion and things like that. Um, you know, if appropriate, in um, faith communities, um, the students and I sometimes talk about our own faith identity, if that is relevant to that particular community, or the respect that we have for people of faith, the ways in which we think that there are smart, um, thoughtful people in faith communities, that we don't just think they're dummies, um, you know, which has been a kind of rhetoric that's been out there in some corners. So I think uh, sort of understanding as a researcher, what's important to your community, and then honoring that. I, I, I'm a big believer in the ethic of doing what you say you're going to do. So we have told each of the scientists for all of our studies that we would re provide a report of the research finding to send them links to articles when the study is done, and we have done that. <laughs> it has been really, really hard because sometimes that's involved in incurring extra costs for translation and different kinds of things. but. Um, we sometimes it's way after the study, so much so that they don't even remember who we are. But um, yeah, we've we've been able to do that. So, is it time to end? Just, yeah, just about. And feel free to put on this one. Dr. Yeah, Arthur. yeah, that's um, fine. But building on that question, I was wondering, um, like your passion is clearly it mm -hmm. comes through. It's awesome uh, as you're sharing this. Any maybe for a closing thought today? Any personal reflections on your journey as like a. Um, Somebody who's in the social sciences, and yes. married, married to a scientist, and also a member of a faith community, and just kind of what that journey's been like for you as you research this, but also you kind of live at this crossroads or, or bilingual in these two, two. Yeah, no, that's a really important thing. I would say it's changed. I'm asked that question often, and I would say that it's changed me in three kinds of ways. I think there's, um, so I have interviewed nearly a thousand scientists at this point in my career. And I have listened to um, many, many stories of conversion and deconversion <laughs> um, for both scientists, but also for people of faith of different sorts. Um, conversion and deconversion in terms of friendliness to science, not friendliness to science. And I think that really causes a kind of deep self-examination and it kind of either kind of crushes you or it causes a deeper reflection. And I hope in my case it's caused a deeper reflection. That's not a very exacting answer, but that has had a very powerful influence um, both in my own research and on my own faith. I do think second that I probably um, care about public translation more than the typical scholar because, and I, I don't want to be judgmental here, I'm just saying this is my perception. Um, more than some others might because I've lived in both of these communities, right? So I've seen um, the kinds of stereotypes take root in ways that are very negative, uh, negative politically, negative for science funding, negative for people's faith lives, um, you know, just have enormous negative consequences. So I, when I have a piece of research that I think could um, have any positive impact, I do feel very morally compelled to go the extra mile. And I and I talk to other researchers who feel compelled in different directions for different reasons, and I and that can be a very um, powerful influence. Um, and I said three, and now I feel like I've only said two. Maybe I'll stop there. I can't remember what the third one was. I hope that's okay. That's yeah. That's thank, you thank you. So much.